Sego, Sewaguego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of True Seed Media. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name program, and the host of the podcast. This is the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series. Today's guest has joined us by telephone. Welcome to this episode of Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast. And we're really excited today because we have an, a guest who I've never interviewed before, but I've always wanted to interview. And his name is Kenneth Deer. He's Mohawk from the Bear Clan, from the Mohawk community of Kahnawake. And welcome, Kenneth, to the podcast today. Oh, Lisa, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. There's so much to talk about, and I know you're a busy person, and we better get right to it. I really want to start with, I know you you started your career in education, but eventually you started a newspaper, and I found that so fascinating because I worked for our community newspaper for many years, the Teka, and you began a newspaper in Kahnawake. Can you talk a little bit about how difficult that was to do? It, it was uh, you know, to start out your own community. You, an independent newspaper is difficult to start when you're not getting any funding from any bodies. And in Ganawage, we, we in the aftermath of the Oka crisis, our community was still going through some post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, and also getting all kinds of information uh, in our community from outside media, Montreal TV and radio and the Montreal Gazette. And a lot of that, because of the crisis and the aftermath, there was a lot of distorted information out there and so we needed a platform of information that our community could depend on and so i got i gathered and and i was at the, after the other crisis bankrupted me i had no money or anything like i wasn't working and i i so i got a, a bunch of friends together some friends and acquaintances and we like-minded people who we all felt that we needed a newspaper so we we had a meeting i remember we had it in a restaurant one, one evening and we went through all the process of how to start a newspaper and so I told him, look, it. I said, if we can start a newspaper, uh, if we can go nonprofit, we'll have to get a charter and get a board. It'll take some time. But if we go private enterprise, it'll have to be my paper because we do Somebody's got to be in charge. And all of them to a man said, Kenneth, you do it. It's your paper and we'll help you. So some people volunteered to write. Some people said they'll type up stuff. Somebody donated me an Apple II <laughs> a computer and somebody else some software. With the help of friends who, who volunteered to uh, write, they volunteered to type stuff up. Well, one person loaned me an Apple II computer. Somebody else got me some electronic software for late, for desktop publishing. And somebody paid for a, a desktop publishing course, a three-day crash course on <laughs> desktop publishing. And put all these things together. And the person who was training me on doing desktop publishing said, Mr. Deere, he says, you're not ready to start a newspaper. <laughs> we will, for a minimal fee, 
we will lay out your newspaper for you for the first two issues. And so with all that putting together and plus the need to get a paper out quickly, I had that meeting on, I remember on November 30th and two months later, January 31st, we put out the first issue of the Eastern Door newspaper. We called it the Eastern Door because the Mohawks are the Eastern Doorkeepers and Gunawag is the furthest east of all our communities. So I called it the Eastern Door. And, and it was successful. We were happy to get it out. And of course, being me, there, I, I have my own political baggage. People were, some people were a little skeptical about what kind of paper is Kennedy are going to produce? Is it going to be a political rag? What's it going to be? And I wanted a newspaper, just a newspaper that the people can depend on. So I, I had a very clear philosophy that it was, it's just, it's, it was going to just going to be a community newspaper. And that's what I did. I, I got stories. We, I got a, I, I sold enough advertising to produce five newspapers. And from that, the paper took off from there. And it took about, about 10 months before the community would accept the paper. At that time, there were about 1,500 domiciles in, in Gunawaga. And I, I thought if I could sell a thousand papers, then I knew that it had broad acceptance. So in 10 months, we were selling a thousand, twelve hundred, fourteen, fourteen hundred papers. So then we knew that we had a broad support across the community. And I kept the philosophy clear. I, I wrote constructive editorials. Uh, we tried to write fair, balanced news articles and, and stuff, and we went on. We went on from there. I did not want to have a political newspaper, and I wanted something to serve the community. We started out biweekly, every two weeks, and then uh, it grew. We started selling more and more advertising, and so the paper got bigger and bigger. So we were having every every two weeks we were putting out a forty-page paper, sometimes forty-four pages, and I said, "Hey, we can cut this in half." Uh, go weekly and, and go for 20 or 24 pages. And the people said, you're, Kenneth, dear, you're crazy. There's not enough news in Gunawaga to have a weekly. We went weekly and we're still bu- buzzing along. Wow. There's a, a lot, of, lots of news and, and we got enough advertising to, to cover the paper. So then we went in 1995, we went weekly and I never looked back and the paper was very successful. By the way, I have no background. I have no background in journalism. I, what I learned is from the seat of my pants, and I just used common sense. Okay, what could be, what could possibly go wrong? All you do is print, just print the truth. You know, what, you know. And what still, we had lessons to learn about journalism and and what's fair and what's balanced, and not to get yourself into trouble. Don't print my, miners' names and stuff like the little little things that sometimes you, you don't really know. So you got to be careful. There's a minefield out there. You, you don't want to get sued. Yeah. Uh, so it was, but it was good. And, and, and I found out that I had a little bit of talent for writing and, and our newspaper won a number of awards for layout and also for editorial writing, news writing and there are cartoons, our political cartoons won awards. It went really well. I credit the Eastern Door successes is just try, just do their news and be constructive. Don't criticize without, unless you have a constructive alternative. When I wrote my editorials, I just didn't, attack something i had something an alternative a, 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 maybe another way or a better way of doing something yeah so the paper got a lot of respect because of that and that's not an easy feat to have a newspaper be successful in a small indigenous community because the community is so tight-knit and everybody knows everybody that's right and also the paper was independent we weren't getting any financial support we only relied totally on advertising and sales and yeah, I got, I did get a grant at the, after I started my newspaper. I got approached by ABC Canada, you know, Aboriginal Business Canada. I says, Hey, Kenneth, he says, you started a newspaper. What do you ask for help? We're going to help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so we put a business plan together and 
they promptly, I got a, a real computer, desktop computer and a, and a filing cabinet and all that kind of stuff. And then, and promptly they put me in debt, the bank. And then, but we operated from there. Otherwise our only income was sales and, and advertising. I wasn't getting, um, I didn't have a sugar daddy or sugar mama anywhere, giving getting money from a local government or some institution. It was all hard earned, uh, a hard scrabble, uh, getting by with what, it was money in, money out. And that's how we operate. We still operate that way. And having the news in a balanced news in a small community is so important. Mm-hmm. Like, you really do need that for the people. And people appreciated that too. They, and I, I sold the paper in 2008 and a lot of people got upset when I sold it. But I, again, because I felt it was time to, to move on. After 16 years, it was time for somebody else to take it. And another Mohawk uh, bought it from me, uh, which was I'm happy about. And But people, uh, I'll tell you the outside people who are regularly, a regular part of our community, but don't, but are not Mohawk, have said to me many times that in the aftermath of the Oka crisis, that the, the, the Eastern Door had a lot to do with the settling down of our, of our of the community, making sure that we made good decisions, that the decision-making was good, and the newspaper helped get over that that stress that, that people were feeling after the crisis, the racism that we were still experiencing for a number of years after the Oka crisis. Our paper experienced that. There were some businesses outside the community would not advertise in our, in our paper because we were, we were a Mohawk paper. You know, I experienced that that kind of racism at the development of our newspaper. It's not really there anymore, but in the 90s, it was there. And uh, we had to get over that. It's probably still there, Kenneth. We just covered up in <laughs> no, different I ways. I'm not saying it's not there. Yeah, yeah. I don't run the newspaper anymore, so I don't see that. Yeah. I, I, I see other racism. Yeah. But that sure. particular, I don't have, I don't know of any stores to say, I'm not going to advertise with you because you're from Gunawagget. Because we spend millions and millions of dollars in our surrounding communities. The car dealers and the stores and stuff, they know that if they want Gunawagi business, they have to, you know, they should advertise in, 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 the, in the media here in Gunawagi. Yeah, for sure. So after you sold the paper in 2008, then what did you move on to doing? Yeah, after the paper, I, I was still involved in the periphery of journalism. I was still writing. I used to write some editorials in the Montreal Gazette. I was really focusing on international stuff. After that, I, but I was doing international uh, stuff with representing our people at the UN for decades. I started way back in 1987 before I started my newspaper. The first time I went to Geneva uh, at the UN was in 1987 at the Working Group on Indigenous Populations, which at the time was doing the first draft of the, de- of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so I was involved in, in international stuff from 1987 all the way to the present. And one way or another, for who knows how that happened. I don't know what hardly can remember anymore. But I went to Geneva every year, every year at least once from 1987 to the present, except for 2020 when COVID stopped any meetings, in-person meetings. And so otherwise, I was always involved in the development of the declaration and other issues that we take, that we bring at, at the international level. I'm going to world conferences against racism and uh, sustainable development. Uh, all of these other international venues that anywhere that we had a chance for indigenous peoples to have our voice heard, I tried to take part in at that at that level. Now we've done a couple of episodes, I think a couple of episodes on Discahe in our podcast. And at the UN, do they still remember Discahe? Absolutely. In Geneva, you're going back 
As long as I've been going to Geneva, every now and again, we would bring up Tuskahi. I knew the story of Tuskahi. He went to the League of Nations in, in 1923 to try to address the League, and he was stopped by Canada and Great Britain. But he was very popular in Geneva, and the residents of Geneva and the dignitaries and the mayor of Geneva had a really good relationship with him. In 1977, when our delegate Haudenosaunee went back to Geneva for the, a big conference, and the mayor of Geneva welcomed headed the, uh, the Haudenosaunee delegation in, in his office, in his, in his area. The first thing that the mayor in 77 asked the Haudenosaunee delegation was, is Tuskahe with you? And the delegation said, no, he's, he's not. He said, he couldn't make it. The Tuskahe at that time was Harvey Longboat from oh, Six Nations. Oh, yeah. And he didn't make that trip in 77, but he, but he sent a gift to, to him. And the, and the mayor said, for the kindness of Tuskahe, uh, the Haudenosaunee will always be welcome in Geneva. Mm-hmm. And so that was tremendous. We don't know what the relationship with the mayor was with Tuskahe. But anyway, he, in 1997, the 20th anniversary of the 77 meeting, Mayor Rossetti of Geneva also repeated that, that promise that the Haudenosaunee will always be welcome in, in Geneva. And the mayor said it again in 2013. And now, 2023, this year is the 100th anniversary of Tuskahe going to the League of Nations. And now, and we're arranging a celebration in July in Geneva and where the mayor, the mayor of Geneva, it'll be, his name will be Mayor Gomez. And he will repeat that promise that the Haudenosaunee will always be welcome in Geneva. And we're going to commemorate Tuskahe by having, there'll be a panel, there'll be 60 panels. Along the lake, along Lake Geneva, that will tell the, the, the Skahe story, the story of the Haudenosaunee, and the story of the Swiss people supporting the Skahe. Uh, and there'll be some commemorations. There'll be a reception at the city hall again for the Haudenosaunee delegation and everybody else. And then the mayor, the city council will have a private dinner with the, with the Haudenosaunee delegation in Geneva to, uh, in July. So there's a lot of activities to commemorate the, the 100th anniversary of Tuskahe going to Geneva. Oh, that's such a amazing history we have with the UN. And it can only get strengthened over the years. We're working on that. And we've already done just uh, a month ago, February 9th, we, uh, we planted a tree apiece in, in a park in Geneva with Clayton Logan, Seneca, from Cataracus, and Brennan Ferguson, Tuscarora, from Tuscarora, and uh, and myself. And it was just a prelude. We wanted to plant the tree of peace in July when we were there. But the city, the botanist, if you plant the tree in July, it might not survive because it's too hot and dry. You have to plant it in during, during the wintertime. The only day we could get together, week we could go there, it was February. So we planted the tree in, in on February night. We brought two weapons of war with us. We brought a war club and an arrow. It was made by, uh, by the Klute brothers in Agusasne. And, uh, and we brought it to them. We brought it there. And, and the city found a tree, found the eastern white pine, which is the tree that, that symbolizes the, the great peace. And they found a 14-foot tree in one of the nurseries over there. And then the city, they dug a hole. And Mayor Gomez took the war club and... Brendan Ferguson had the arrow and they, they put it in the ground, forming an X. And then the tree was, was planted on top of that, on top of that tree. And there were all kinds of, a couple of hundred people there. And the media was there covering the whole thing. And we made that, that the symbolic gesture of unity between ourselves and the city of Geneva by planting this tree of peace. And, and that was to start the commemoration of the Skahe's 100th anniversary.
I'm glad to know that the tree of peace is over there. Right. <laughs> and so going on, you, you're now doing work with the Haudenosaunee, our traditional council, and the right. communications area. What, what are you doing there? I'm part of the Haudenosaunee External Relations Committee, and that was formed, I can't remember, 2016. 2017, and it's made by the Grand Council and with the cooperation of both the ones in Onondaga and the one in Six Nations. And with this committee, we're trying to do the, the active work of making sure that we had good relations with other states. And it's a very broad mandate, but it, it's a very important one because we've been a little lax in the past of keeping up good relations. And so with this committee, we've been going to the United Nations in New York. We've been going to the United Nations in Geneva. We've been also very active with other countries like Bolivia. We've gone to Bolivia, Ecuador. We've been working hard on getting people to use our Haudenosaunee passport in their travels. And I've done a lot of uh, getting visas. If you travel on a Haudenosaunee passport, it's very difficult to travel with. And we have to get permission from the countries that we go to, to allow us in the country. So we do a lot of work in getting, getting the, those countries to accept our passport and the, le- the latest one that we've just, it was Egypt. We sent a delegation from the Haudenosaunee uh, Environmental Task Force to COP27 climate change in, in, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. So we had to negotiate and we had to, decide, we had to convince Egypt to allow our delegation into Egypt. And we were very successful at that. And we've been getting people into a, a number of other countries, Germany and she was in, we've been to Ecuador just before the COVID pandemic broke. We, we went to Ecuador and Ecuador allowed us in without a visa. They said, you don't need a visa to come to Ecuador. Wow. Uh, so that was good. Personally, I, I've been to 25 countries with the, with the passport. And all of those times is always because of invitation, going to conferences and meetings of one kind or another. I, very rarely ever travel on vacation. <laughs> I don't know, it's always to do work, but part of the external relations committee is to have good relations with Canada and with the United States and with all these other countries. Because it's one thing to be allowed into a country like Egypt. Another thing is to be allowed back into Canada. There are there were times in the past where our people were not allowed to come back and got stuck in countries outside El Salvador or Bolivia or or France. So we, we now we have, we've managed to make good relations with Canada and Canada will allow us to travel back into Canada on a Haudenosaunee passport. So those are important developments that the committee has been able to accomplish in the last few years. So is the committee working towards getting all Haudenosaunee people able to get a Haudenosaunee passport and travel on that? Well, traveling, like I said, is very difficult. And in order to get a passport, there's a protocol. You have to go through your own nation. Your own nation has to approve your application, and the passports are authorized out of Onondaga, New York. So all applications have to go there, and then once that's approved, then it goes. Then your passport is printed. Uh, but then to travel on it, though, is, is another matter. And depending on what country you go to, you got to let us know where you're going. So we have to inform Canada, and we we'll also make sure that the country you're going to will accept you. And you can get back into the country from where from wherever you are. So it's not easy. You know, if you just want to go to Cancun to go on vacation, maybe a Haudenosaunee passport is not might not be the easiest thing to, to do that. You know, so it's not something. It's a political statement. It's their identity, and some people feel very strongly about it. They won't go anywhere unless they can be on a Haudenosaunee passport. And 
think. So I just caution people that there are some countries that won't let us in, like Brazil. Brazil won't, won't let us in, and they're very strict about that. I was in, I was invited to a United Nations meeting in Brasilia, and we had a big long argument with the, the government of Brazil. In the end, they said no, we're, we're we don't allow people into the country without an Australian passport. Peru, Peru won't let us in. Recently, Chile would wouldn't let us in. So there are some countries that that, that won't. And, but there are other countries that that are very welcoming. As long as you get an invitation, a connection in, inside that country, they prefer that you're invited to the country by somebody rather than you just going there because you just want to. It's a bit more difficult. It's very difficult to travel on a Haudenosaunee passport. But it's the only passport I have. It's the only one I use. And if, if a country doesn't accept me, well, too bad for them. Brazil doesn't want any Haudenosaunee there. It's too bad for Brazil. So, yeah, those are countries, too, that have large indigenous populations. I, exactly. And I think that's why they don't want uh, us going there and giving them these crazy ideas, like having their own passport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay, you've been doing some work in getting our sacred items back from museums. How's yeah. that? How's that going, Kenneth? It, it went really well. We, when we went to Geneva last year, they had an exhibit on on environment and indigenous people, and and they had, for instance, they had a small display on the Skahe and the indigenous movement in Geneva, and they also had a display of two of my passports. Uh, that's how old I am. They have my passports, but <laughs> I'm a museum exhibit. Yeah. Uh, while we were there, the, uh, our delegation looked into the permanent exhibit and in the permanent exhibit there was a medicine mask on the wall and a turtle rattle and they said this can't that doesn't belong there we've got to get it down so we talked to the the, uh, the director of the museum it was a woman and she was very progressive and she says if it's not supposed to be we'll take it down so we had a ceremony we had a ceremony a couple of days later and we burned tobacco we brought the mask out and brandon ferguson spoke to it in tuscarora and the museum had the mask since 1825. Wow. So they've had that mask for almost 200 years. It was a gift by a swift traveler. So that mask is very old. And Brennan burned tobacco using a pipe because we can't, couldn't make a fire. And, and then we, uh, and we put the, the mask in, in a box and we put it in, and we carried it into a vault in the basement. And they said, the museum said, if you want that returned, write us a letter. So we came back home and we wrote the, uh, the museum a letter asking them to return the mask. And we made very sure the mask and the rattle, when we ask for it, there'll be no condition that we, the museum was not going to tell us how to take care of it or what to do with it. We wanted no condition on the return of the mask. So we sent it to the directors and she approved the, uh, the return of the mask. And then they had to go to the board of directors of the museum. And then the director convinced them to release the mask. And then they had to go to the city of Geneva because the city of Geneva owns the museum. And then they had to approve it. So that took from July all the way till November. And then they had to detoxify the mask and the rattle. In other words, they had to check to make sure if there's a preservative on there. Sometimes there's arsenic or there's some kind on some kind of insecticide that they coat these items with. But they checked the material and said there was, fortunately, there was no preservative on, on, on any of these, these two artifacts. So they released it to us and we were able to pick it up. And so we went in February, the same day, the same week to plant a tree apiece. We went to the museum and there we had a ceremony. We had a press conference and there was a lot of people. There's about 150 people that showed up to the press conference to release the mask. And the museum was so impressed. 
There are so many people showed up. We had the, uh, the Swiss government showed up, the government of Canada, the ambassador of Canada to the UN uh, was there. She was invited by the museum and a representative of the U.S. government. And I invited the government of Mexico and Guatemala because we have good relations with them. Because in, in Geneva, they are responsible for the resolution on indigenous, the rights of indigenous peoples. And so there was a, a large number of people. And also, they allowed us to make a fire. In the, we had it in the auditorium, and we, made, we did a practice the day before. But we burned, we had some wood shavings, and we made a fire. And our elder... Clayton Logan of Seneca, he did the words and to the mask and the rattle. And the media were told we ought, we ought no pictures. And they were very cooperative. The media didn't take any pictures while we were doing the tobacco burning and we're doing the opening Thanksgiving and the closing Thanksgiving. The media were very accommodating by, by not, not violating our request. But around that, though, the media was, there were lots of media there and they took a lot of pictures. And there were a lot of media coverage in the United in, in Switzerland in Europe and also back home a lot of media a lot of media here in, in Canada CBC APTN uh, CTV a lot of media picked up the story about the return of mass and the rattle there also I want to point out not only did the museum and Switzerland cooperate with the return of all this material the government of Canada also was cooperative because it was important we were concerned that Customs and immigration might see the rattle because the rattle is made from a snapping turtle and a snapping turtle is a protected species. And so they were, there was some concern that immigration would seize the rattle and we'd never see it again. And it was a warning from the Swiss to be careful. So we contacted Canada and Canada assured us afterwards some discussion with them that not to worry that there's a rule that allows indigenous artifacts to be returned without going through all the immigration regulations. And to make sure that that are actually returned, they sent, when we arrived in Montreal, they had a, two CBSA officers at the door of the, of the airplane to greet us. And one of them was in the Schnabe. CBSA officer Marsha was his last name. I'm trying to remember his first name. And they, they met us at the door and they made sure, because we were carrying the, the mask and the rattle in our carry-on luggage. And so we want to make sure that, that they wouldn't be taken away from us or seized by, by anybody. And they were there to make sure that that wouldn't happen. So we had a lot of cooperation from the Swiss and from the Canadian government. I want to emphasize that this doesn't always happen. That it, was just, it took us seven months from the time we saw we saw the mask on the wall in July of 2022 to the February 2023. Seven months. It took us seven months to, to get our stuff material returned. And that is almost a record time. It, sometimes it takes years and years to convince museums to release our stuff because museums jealously guard the material and they don't want to really want to give up anything. The director, her name is Corinne Durand and, and she was such a wonderful lady and she was very, very co cooperative and she convinced everybody else that this is the right thing to do. So we, yeah, I think this is a model for other museums and other countries to follow. This relationship between the Museum of Ethnography in Geneva and the Haudenosaunee, that's the kind of relationship that all indigenous people should have with all museums and getting back their sacred items. And human remains. Yeah, for sure. And once you brought the idols back, where do, where are they now? Right now, well, we, well, I can tell you that. <laughs> we didn't want to tell the media that. We told the media over there, look, it's, 
when it gets back to Haudenosaunee territory, it's a mask, a mask, and we have a society, yeah. a medicine society, yeah. and they will take that. They'll take that responsibility. So I, yeah. what I can tell you is that it's in Tuscarora yeah. right now, yeah. and it's up to the society yeah. in, in, in Tuscarora to decide what to do with the mask. Yeah, for sure. This has been so great visiting with you, Kenneth. I've always wanted to do this interview, and retirement doesn't seem to be in your vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, that's what my wife says. I, I retired many years ago. I'm still very active, and I'm not complaining, though, because I think everybody has to have a purpose in life, and I'm just continuing the purpose that I've been carrying on all this time. I don't run a newspaper anymore. I don't run a school, but I do lecture at the local universities here at McGill and at Concordia. Uh, Concordia was very nice to me. They gave me an honorary Dr. de Blas in 2015 to honor my lifetime work in education and journalism and the international arena. So I'll keep him busy mm-hmm. talking, giving lectures or teaching, and also going to meetings back in, in New York or in Geneva. And it, it keeps me busy. You guys keep me busy with our podcast <laughs> and interview. Yeah, maybe you'll have to delve into starting your own podcast. <laughs> then you can stay home and just talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Nyawe for visiting with us today, Kenneth. I appreciate oh, you're, it. You're very welcome. Okay. Okay. Onigiwahi. Okay. Oh, yeah. Ona. Ona. This has been the Ohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located at the top of the homepage of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Road to Your Name. This has been the Ohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series.